little sore about that. I thought I would shamelessly work that out, work that in. But um, so we're going we're gonna to kind of just steady the course here through 1 Corinthians, and uh, I'm, I'm very excited about this book and uh, the ability to take, to take uh, you through it and uh, just share many great things with you. The name of this series is Church is Messy. I don't think we could come up with a more appropriate title for a series uh, than just taking notice of the fact that church is messy. It's not supposed to be a sterile environment. I think we've sort of developed this mental imagery of church, that church is this place uh, where, where only good people go. And the reality is there are no good people out there as far as that goes, we're all broken. You know what I'm saying? Like as far as being better than one being better than the other, we're all jacked up. And so church isn't supposed to be a sterile environment. Church is not supposed to be a place, you know, and again, I know we think this way because people say stuff like, well, man, if I walked in the building, the roof would fall in, right? To which I always say it hasn't yet. And you ought to see the kind of people that go to the ridge (laughs) and we're still holding together. But anyway, we, we've developed this, um, you know, this, I don't know if you call it a philosophy or just a mental image of what church is. And, and I think that's so far off to what the church is meant to be. Uh, the way Jesus designed the church, if you look at the people that Jesus called and ordained to church ministry, they were not the cream of the crop. He called fishermen. Simon Peter couldn't even keep his mouth shut half the time. He was always saying something stupid. Every now and then he'd, he'd, you know, the old blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and then, you know, sometimes he'd say something good, but Simon Peter was always putting his foot in his mouth. And, uh, you know, but those are the kinds of people that Jesus uses. Jesus uses people who are real and uh, people who understand that the only good thing about them is the savior that, that rescued them. And uh, so that's sort of our theme around here. We understand that it's all about Jesus and we want to magnify him. So we're in first Corinthians chapter number two, we're going to read the entire chapter. It's only 16 verses, but I want you to get the entirety of the context. So begin with me in verse number one, Paul says, I brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were, with, were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So you'll continually see throughout chapter 2 that there is a, there's, a, there's an obvious theme that builds, and that is the need of wisdom and understanding. Uh, as we look for God in so many different obscure ways throughout life, we find God often in the most reasonable uh, of, of ways, and that is God speaks to us oftentimes through wisdom. We look for God in the mystical, and God does sometimes work in the mystical, doesn't he? But it's called supernatural for a reason. It's above the natural. It's not normal. It's not what we generally should look for. We find God often in, in, in very simple, pragmatic ways. The wisdom of God, the Bible says, is the principal thing. So Paul employs this notion, this concept in chapter 2 where he's telling us we need wisdom, we need understanding, we need to gain perspective because whatever controls your mind controls you. So the way that you view life, the way that you view people, the way you view yourself, the way you ultimately view God is going to be very detrimental to how you behave and conduct yourself. And so Paul says you have to gain understanding. And so in verse number six, he says, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are 
coming to nothing. Now, the intellectuals of the world claim to be just that, very superior intellectually. But the truth of the matter is, uh, I don't really, I've grown to the point in life, and I hope you have too, that I just don't trust what they feed me. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I think you should question everything. If you only knew how crazy my conspiratorial mind gets sometimes. But, but there, here's, here's just a very basic reality. We can't even trust what they, what, the food that they give us. Right? I, I don't trust the FDA. This is not a soapbox, I promise you. But I'm just saying when we, when we bring this stuff into question, sometimes people go, well, you know, I think we can. I don't trust anybody. And so we ultimately have to come back to the, to the fact that, that God is the source of all true wisdom and, and, and truth is, is founded in him. And you can't understand truth and you can't have true knowledge if your basis is not the very knowledge of God itself. So Paul says we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this world, uh, nor the rulers of this world who are coming to nothing. Verse 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory which none of the rulers of this world knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Now, notice this question in verse 11. He says, for what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So he asks a question in verse number 11, who knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? In other words, nobody really knows you like you know you, except for your spouse after maybe 20 years, right? But he said, who really knows you except for you? What man knows the things of man except the spirit of man which is in him? And then he goes on to say, well, it's the same with God. Who knows the things of God? Who really understands God except the spirit of God? Which seems virtually impossible then for people like you and me to really understand God, right? And yet he goes on to say in verse number 16, who's known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. So there are things that we can understand. There are things about God that we can comprehend. There are things pertaining to the nature of God that we must know in order to truly know God. And so today, I'm going to circle back. We began this two weeks ago, uh, but we begin with the question, who is God, dot, dot, dramatic dot, to you? Who is God to you? And so when you think about God, when you, when you envision God, how do you feel? How do you think? How do you view him? We want to try to unpack that today. It's going to be difficult with this many people to hit on everything, but I want to try okay, at least to form concepts that we can wrap our mind around. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity that we have today to be here, 
to worship together, to open your word together. I pray that you direct us now as we, as we try to navigate this passage. I pray that you grant me wisdom, Father, to say everything that needs to be said in a way that, that we can comprehend, that we can walk away knowing that you have spoken to us. Father, I pray that your spirit would translate to our hearts exactly what we need to know, what we need to hear. Every person in the room today walk in, walked in with different issues in their lives, different problems that they're facing, different burdens that they're carrying. And so today I pray that you would do the work that only you can and supply the need of every person's heart. Please fill me with your spirit, direct my steps, and Lord will give you the glory and all the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. So <clears throat> when you think of God, what do you think? Now, I want to begin by saying we 100% understand this from an interpersonal perspective. And what I mean by that is we understand it on the level that certain people make us feel a certain way when their name is brought up. I'll let you sit and think about that one for a second. But there are people in your past, people perhaps in your present, that, that when someone mentions their name, be it a, a, a past relationship, maybe it's just a bad business interaction that you've had. When their name is mentioned, there are all sorts of toxic feelings that begin arising in your heart, right? right. No? You feel good about everybody. None of us do. There are people that when their names are brought up, there, there are certain people that the thought of those people can make you feel anxious. You get nervous just thinking about having to carry on a conversation with them. There are probably people in a community as small as ours that you worry every time you go to Walmart that you're going to run into them. Not because you're a coward and not because you live in fear. You just know that there's going to be a certain level of awkwardness that accompanies that conversation. Or you turn and run down another aisle real quick as soon as you see them. <laughs> you're those people, aren't you? So, so we get it, don't we? We get this. When we think about certain people... Certain people, just the mention of their name can bring up feelings of, of anxiety, feelings of nervousness, feelings of trepidation. Other people, um, just being around them, just thinking about being around them can make you excited. I'm happy to see you, right? That's how you feel every Sunday when you think about coming to church. I'm going to get to see Dudley today. I hope, I, hope, I hope you have that feeling of different people in your life that, that just mentioning being around them. Hey, I'm going to get to see them next Thursday. And that brings up feelings of excitement. You know, you're going to have a healthy conversation. You know that they're not going to drag you down some rabbit hole of gossip or toxicity. But you're going to have some just, just healthy, strengthening, you know, those types of people that we all like to be around. People that make you laugh. People that make you feel good. People who aren't always criticizing, not always cutting you down. But they're encouragers. They're exhorters. They, they strengthen, you, strengthen you just being around around them helps you. But we think of people, we know people like that, often few and far between in reality. Am I right? But there are those people, there are those people that just make us feel happy. There are people that we dread because of the boredom that we're going to have to carry the conversation. And if you're like me, a guy who can't handle silence, I'm the type of person that being around awkward people makes me feel awkward, and I suddenly become awkward, and I make things more awkward, and I say something stupid, you know, try to talk about things I don't know what I'm talking about, just to keep the conversation flowing, so you think about certain people, and you, you have this idea, man, I'm going to have to, like, what can I talk about? There are those people. But you get it, right? You follow me. 
Certain people bring with them certain feelings. We all emit a certain presence, and, and we, we think of other people in certain ways of how they make us feel and how we view them, what our perception of those people are. So, so what do you think about with that in mind when you think about being in God's presence? When you think about God, how do you see Him? How do you view Him? Some people view God in a, in a similar way, unfortunately, to how a child would view an imaginary friend. Their idea of God is sort of disconnected from reality. They disconnect between spirituality and reality, right? You ever know those people want to admit that you are one of those people? That, that you, you sort of compartmentalize God, right? You put God in, in, a, in a different region of your life, like you have your normal everyday life, and then you have your, you know, your, your spiritual side, right? Uh, there's, this, 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 there's this disconnect between how we actually live and then how we want to be perceived as Christians. And so we, we begin this sort of disjointed journey where God doesn't necessarily fit into our lifestyle, but we still want to have him on speed dial. And so some people talk about God, and, 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 and they use terms that really um, uh, just really project this notion that their idea of God is disconnected from their everyday life. And so, and so we've got to realize that, that God is not some pie-in-the-sky imaginary fairy tale that we tell our kids. And we have to begin to realize that God is real and that his presence is with us everywhere we go and that he wants to be invested and involved in every intricate detail of our lives. But we have to get our thinking squared away as to how we view God and how we feel toward God and what our mental image of him really is. So here's a hard fact. Y'all ready for this? It's early on in the sermon. I'm going to give you a hard fact. Hard fact, number one, is simply this, that, that God's nature is immutable, meaning he doesn't change. The Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God who never, ever changes. His character is always the same. His behavior is indicative of his character, and so his behavior never changes. God doesn't change. He's immutable in nature, but how we view God does change. The way that we view God, the way that we understand God, in fact, I would go ahead and just say the, fa the way that we view God and specifically the way that we understand our relationship with God should evolve over time. The way you understand God should be changing for the better, should be growing. You ought to be getting to know him on a deeper level. Uh, God ought to be moving from this far off thought or this mental construct that you developed early on in life. God ought to be shifting from that to someone who is with you, who, who is deeply invested in every aspect of your life, your family, your business dealings. You ought to be viewing God in a deeper, on a deeper level now than you ever have before. So even though God never changes, our understanding of him from the moment we meet him until the day that we meet him face to face should be growing and should be moving. And so, listen, you've got to learn to see God through the scope of Scripture and understand Him for who He truly is. 
I used to understand God. I mentioned this before as far as the way. Remember I was trying to unpack. Y'all, were y'all here for that sermon? I'm pretending like you were just here and you already know what I'm talking about. But, but, uh, but, but I talked about how sometimes we view God through the lens of a, of a religious institution. That was very much my view of God at one time. I used to see God through, through, through the scope of the, reli- the rigorous church culture that I was a part of for years. And, and so with, within that culture, my relationship with God was constantly on trial. Y'all ever been there? If I had a good day, it's just the way that, that I would process things. If I had a good day, then surely God must have been happy with me. But conversely, if I had a bad day, then, then, then God must be upset with me about something. And it must be me. I must have done something wrong. Maybe this morning I didn't praise him enough. Maybe I didn't pray enough. Maybe I didn't read the Bible enough. Maybe <clears throat> I didn't do something right. Therefore, my day was, was running into a tailspin and going in the wrong direction because God must be angry with me about something. I had a very convoluted view of God because on one hand, I did understand him as a father. The Bible clearly says that he's our father, that his spirit from within us, when, when we put our faith and trust in Christ and, and the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, the Bible says his spirit from within us cries, Abba, Father. And, and the Bible says in John chapter number one, that as many as received him to them, he gave the power to become the sons of God, even those who believe on his name. So I understood God as father in that sense, but I also viewed him as a father with, with intense standards. I viewed him as a father who was, who was very hard to please and one whose demand for justice outweighed his affection for me. That was clearly how I viewed God. My idea of God was based on, yeah, he, he's my father, I'm his son, but I also have to walk a fine line because, because my, my father has strict rules and he's such a just and holy God that his holiness, his justice, his thirst for equity and righteousness would surely outweigh his affection and feelings toward me. So if I was a good little boy, daddy would be good to me. If I was a bad person, if I did bad things, if I slipped up, messed up, did something, I can't even think of anything bad. That's how holy I am. (laughs) Think of something you guys might do. I don't know. (laughs) Transpose yourself into my story. But if I had a bad day, lost my cool, just, just was off, we all have off days, don't we? If I was off, God surely wasn't happy with me. And so I don't know what you think of when you think of God. And I mentioned before, we often view God through the lens of experience. If we, if we, if we were raised in a wholesome uh, home environment, sometimes we have a, a more wholesome view of God. Where somebody who's raised in a toxic, abusive environment, sometimes you view God in that way. So it's important how we parent our children. But at the end of the day, we all have to reset and come to him with a clean slate and say, God, I want to know you for who you are. I want to I understand how you view me. I want to understand what our relationship is like. Am I on trial? Am I constantly having to make sure that, that my good outweighs my bad? Am I consistently in this perpetual motion of trying to do right, not just because I want to be right or do the right thing, but because if I do wrong, surely daddy is going to take me to the woodshed. And so we have to develop this, this idea of God that is founded in the truth, which is why Jesus said the truth is what makes you free. 
So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, we find that it's all about possessing both the capability and the responsibility to understand God on a personal level. Did you know that God wants you to know him intimately? God wants you to know him on a personal level, so much so that he said of himself that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. God wants to be so intimately involved in every detail and every aspect of your life that you can share your deepest, darkest secrets with him knowing that he loves you and he's going to guide you in the direction that's best for you. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 2 is all about both possessing the capability and the responsibility of knowing God on a personal level. And yet it begins with Paul claiming that in his approach of guiding them to a better understanding of God, he would initially only focus on the cross of Christ. I, I have found this a little baffling over time. That in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul says in verse number 2, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, how many of y'all, just be honest, you have more questions than that when it comes to God? See, unfortunately, as Christians, we've gotten to the point that we're scared to ask honest questions. But the reality is we all have questions about God. We all have big whys. We all have big situations in our lives that we look back on and we don't understand. You may be dealing with things right now in this moment that you carried in here today and you're trying to put it out of your mind and yet there's something haunting you because you know there's an imminent situation that you have to deal with and you don't know how to deal with it. So when you deal with somebody like Paul who says, hey, I determined when I was with you, I can't answer those questions. I'm going to keep circling back to the cross. I get a little frustrated, frankly because I have deeper questions, because I'm a deep individual, aren't you? The truth is, we sometimes can't see the forest for the trees, and I think that's what Paul was getting at, because that approach seems, seems like way too simple, doesn't it? Seems way too elementary. Seriously, think of any question that you might ask today in reference to the Bible or reference to God himself, what we call theology proper. Think about any question you have right now. And all I said was, well, Jesus died on the cross, was buried and rose again for your sins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But well, Jesus died on the cross, he was buried and rose again the third day for your sin. At some point you're going to say, dude, I get it, but I still have questions. And, but, but here's the reality. Here's why we think that way. And some of you are trying to not admit that you think like this. But the truth of the matter is that the average Christian sees the cross as the most basic truth within the construct of biblical studies, when in reality, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is by far the most profound subject known to man. <laughs> there is no deeper subject than the subject of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the fact that God took upon himself the form of a man and was made obedient unto death, even the death of the cross is the deepest well that you'll ever try to draw from. And so sometimes, unfortunately, in church culture, we hear a guy get up and begin to teach on the cross or preach on the cross, and we sort of disconnect and we say, you know what, I know this already. So I'm going to sit here and I'm going to amen when I can. I'm going to nod my head because there are surely other people that need to hear this. These buffoons who've never heard such things before. These, these surface level, entry level people who don't really know Christ maybe need to hear a sermon on the cross. 
these lost people who are coming into a church environment that they've never been in before, surely they need to hear about the cross. But I'm going to submit to you this morning that perhaps that subject goes far deeper than you've ever recognized in your own personal life. The message of the cross, Paul established in chapter 1, verse number 18, is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us which are saved, it's the power of God. And then in chapter 2, he tells us that the cross is the wisdom of God. So we see initially that the cross both has all power, it's effective to transform our lives, it's effective to carry us through every trial, it's effective to get us through what we need to get through, and it's also effective in giving us the wisdom that we need to understand the deeper, darker scenarios and situations that we will inevitably encounter in this world. And so stop thinking of the cross as being being 101 level Christianity. The cross is the length, the breadth, and the depth, and the height of all that we know about God contained in the simple fact that Jesus became the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So in part one of this series, I said that the cross reveals two immutable, indelible realities. Reality number one that's revealed in the cross is God's intrinsic nature. We talked about understanding God, knowing God, viewing God. How do you view God? How do you think of God? And again, we often think of God as being this far-off being that, that, yes, he's there, and yes, he created all things, but he probably doesn't care about the little problems in my life. Or if you got through an institution that he's, he's too holy, he's too unapproachable, I've got to talk through a person or pray through a person or go through a ritual or go through some system to get into his presence because surely he's too per- perfect and holy and righteous for somebody as dirty as I am. But when we think about God, you, you have to realize that the, the most basic element of God's nature, God's intrinsic nature was revealed to us in the cross of Jesus Christ. The most important thing for us to understand, the baseline that has to be established in order for us to understand every other activity and every other attribute of God is that he at his core is the very definition of love itself. Now y'all listen to me. Don't work on your shopping list right now. I need you to hear this because everything else that we understand about God has to grow from this point. Every other thing that we see about God, every other command, every other act we see recorded in the Word of God, every situation in reference to God has to begin with this fundamental baseline, this fundamental understanding of who He is. And God, at His very core, His intrinsic nature, is that He is love. I showed you this two weeks ago. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 8 says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is is love. I don't care how loud you scream, how much you claim to know, how dogmatic you can be about your theology. He said, if you don't love, you don't know God because knowing God is to know love. And so to claim God without knowing what it is to love people is to make a false claim about your knowledge of God. You follow me? I kind of lost myself there. But you get my drift. God is not loving. It says that God is love. That means that that you can't actually know love 
without knowing God. That God himself is not just the perfect representation or display of love. That God himself is love. It's the most fundamental concept about who he is. God is love insomuch that he says if you don't know love, you can't know God because that is who God is. You have to know his nature above all things else is that God is love. So, so that's, that's the first thing that we need to see in the cross, that in the cross, God's intrinsic nature is revealed. Now, now watch this. The second thing that we see in the cross is that the cross revealed your intrinsic value. Do you remember I said that, that sometimes we have a, a sort of a broken view of God because we have a broken view of who we are? And society, by the way, does a very good job at jacking that up. You're taught from a very young age by implication or, or, or just outright stated that you're, uh, you're just a cosmic accident. That you just got here, that, that things just sort of fell together and, yeah, I'm here, here you are. <laughs> and you're just sort of floating around in this purposeless cosmos, this world, and you're here and then when you're gone, you're going to be forgotten and there's nothing in the afterlife and there is no real purpose, so serve yourself, do what feels good, you be your own God, you lead your own way. When the reality is you were intricately designed by God himself and though broken, he still looks at you from the foundation of who he is, which means he looks at you through eyes of mercy and love. So the second most important thing for you to understand is that you are loved by God. Did you hear that? You are loved by God. God loves you. Now, if that doesn't thrill you, it might be because you already sort of have this fantasy mindset of who God is. We're not talking about some far off fantasy idea of a being out there. We're talking about a personal God who designed you intricately, proportionately, made you who you are and loves everything about you because you are his and he is love. God loves you. He simply loves you. With whatever you could throw up in his way, every protest, every reason why he shouldn't, he still loves you. So much so that he chose rather to die for you than to live without you. John chapter 3, verse number 16. Again, I know this seems so elementary to some of you intellectuals. But I need you to understand we're going to deal with some hard topics in the book of 1 Corinthians. In order to deal with those hard topics, we have to approach them through this phase of understanding. And that is, first and foremost, above all else, God is love. And God loves you. And we see that displayed in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. I mentioned this last time, but it bears mentioning again because that was two weeks ago and you probably forgot this already. But we use the word so when we don't have words to express the way that we feel. You've probably said to your children, if you actually love your kids, I love you so much. I love you so much. I don't know how to tell you how much I love you. Hopefully at some point you've said that to your spouse, baby, I love you so much. 
How much? I don't, I can't even put it into words. I can buy you things. I can write you poems. I can do nice things. I can pick up my underwear. But at the end of the day, there's no way that I can express my love for you. So I'm just going to leave my underwear on the floor and say, I love you so much, baby. (laughs) But we use the word so when there is no other word in our mortal language that can describe the way that we feel. And, it, and it, I, found it, I find it intriguing that when God was describing his love for us, now think about this, the God of all gods, King of kings, Lord of lords, majesty of all majesties, when he was explaining himself to us how much he loved us, he reached a point where he said, you know, you don't have the words for me to describe it. There's, there's not a noun, there's not an adjective, there's no way that I can express my love for you. So when the father wanted to tell us how much he loved us, he said, I just love you so much. I love you so much that I gave my only begotten son, my only son to die on the cross for you. This is how much I love you. I would rather give my own life, give the life of my son, than to live throughout eternity without you in my presence. That is love. That is love so much that in John chapter 15, verse number 13, Jesus said, greater love has no man than this, than a man lays down his life for his friends. How much does God love you? He loves you so much that he died in your place. Does that mean anything to you? When you think about God, is that the first thing you think about? That that his affection for you is so deep, that his compassion, his mercy his love for you is so profound that think about it. He could have just left us and let us be and, and allowed us to continue in our own destructive ways because as creatures, we are very self-destructive. And God could have allowed us just to continue on toward perdition and damnation and, and destruction. And yet, as he looked ahead in time, when mankind had fallen when man had disobeyed when man could couldn't keep one freaking command right i want you to have life well i think i'll eat this tree that you told me would kill me good idea adam appreciate that bro right and yet we would all do the same thing at some point The Bible says that every one of us has turned to his own way. We all have made some decision at some point in our lives. We said, you know what? I think I'm going to do this on my own, Lord. You just stand over there in the shadows. I'm going to handle this. And we operate and we function and we make decisions that separate us from God. And yet God said, I'm going to be the one who steps in as an advocate and brings them back to me. I'm going to draw them back in. I'm going to pursue them. And in your course of destruction, whether it's today or whether it was 15 years ago, at some point in your life, God has intervened and God has stepped into your reality and told you uh, with his heart and with compassion and mercy in his eyes, I love you. I have a purpose for you. I have a plan for you. And I don't care where you've been or what you've done. I want to heal you. I want to lift you up. I want to put you back together. And I want to take all the mess that you've made and turn your life into a message that's beautiful and glorious because I just love you that much. God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. Are y'all getting nervous because you're getting the feeling that this is introduction and not sermon? (laughs) Is that what's going on today? So hear me out. I'm actually not going to preach. I'm just going to give you the introduction and close. No, I'm dead serious. You ain't getting it. I can tell. 
you don't want the outline, so I'm going to just give you the introduction, but I, I need you to hear this next part. In Luke chapter 10, verse number 17, the disciples had been sent out, commissioned by Christ himself, and he gave them his power in a unique way, unfounded, supernatural power through the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit was with them, and he commissioned 70 disciples, and they went out, and they were preaching, and they were healing, and they were casting demons out of people's lives. And it says in Luke 10, verse number 17, that the 70 returned with joy, saying, now notice this, Lord, even the demons are subject to us through your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. In other words, big deal. (laughs) You act like that was a problem. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. He said, behold, I give you the authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Now, 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 here is how profound this is. In effect, Jesus said to his followers, and ultimately to us, because it was written for our learning and admonition, the Bible says, Jesus effectively says, hey, look, things are good now, right? Things were great in that moment. They were excited. It was like everywhere I went, people were being healed Lives were being changed. I was seeing all these amazing results. Jesus said, time out. Don't get excited about that. And we all do, don't we? We all love to see the numbers. We all love when there's a lot of money in the bank. We love when everything's going well. But Jesus said, don't get excited. Don't rejoice about that because this will change. You're going to face difficulties in this world. You will face hard times. By the way, again, that was a supernatural outpouring of God's spirit. So Jesus said, don't put your stock in that. Don't, don't pin your joy in that. Don't, don't allow yourself to, to be mesmerized by the results. In this, don't rejoice because hard times will come. You're going to suffer. You're going to fight battles. But you don't ever for a minute think that I have forsaken you. No matter what enters into your life, don't, 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 don't allow yourself to be manipulated and dictated by the, by the atmosphere, remember every single day, whether you're having a good day or a bad day, whether things are working out well or whether things are falling apart, he said, don't ever for a moment think that I have forgotten you or I have failed you. Your name is written in heaven. In other words, you are on my heart 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to make an absolute mess of yourself, but don't ever think I've given up on you. Here's where you find joy. Here's where you find real contentment, real peace, real happiness. You have to find your identity in the God who loves you. (laughs) People are not going to love you all the time. Are you okay? I know it's difficult to understand. Sometimes people aren't going to like you. And so if you live for the adoration and the applause of people, then you will die in its absence. If you let people validate you and affirm you, 
If you let money or possessions become your identity, if you let success be the thermostat of your joy, then you'll find yourself at some point in a place of great desperation and despondency because life changes with the seasons. Life is temporary. Results are temporary. People are temporary. God, however, is eternal. And the eternal God, are you hearing me, loves you infinitely with all your flaws. There's more to know. We're going to get into it. But the God who sees everything about you loves you in spite of, loves me in spite of me, looks beyond all of our faults, our frailties, the scars, the skeletons, the shadows, everybody has a shadow that follows them. That thing that you don't like to tell anybody about, those secrets that you want to keep to yourself, He knows them. He knows what you did. He knows why you did it. And yet he loves you. And he welcomes you. And he wants to forgive you. And if you're here today and you've never put your faith and your trust in Christ, you can enter into a perfect relationship with him through his son, the Lord Jesus. By his grace, not by some system of merit, not by joining this church or linking up with a religion it's not about religion I hate religion fundamentally hate religion because Jesus didn't die to make you religious he died to make you free he died to bring you into personal relationship intricate relationship with himself If you have questions about that or need prayer, we'll have people standing by. If you want to come forward or catch us after the service, we'd like to talk more with you about it. But Christian, hear me out. You need to get this. I need to get it. I've been saved for 23 years, been studying the Bible nearly every day of my life since then. And I still have difficult times wrapping my mind around the fact that God accepts me and loves me. Y'all okay with me being real? There are times I just can't fathom that God even would care about my little piddly issues and problems and yet he does and he cares about yours too let's stand together as the band plays we're going to have another worship song if you're one of the old regulars you know how we roll this there's no formal customary thing that you need to do right now if you want to sing with the band you sing if you want to sit and pray you sit and pray if you want to reflect if you need to come forward and have someone pray with you. You can do that too. We just want you to do business with God. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you'd work in every single heart.